friendly countries. It's a bangly bang. On the Empire podcast this week, who ordered the hitman? No, we're not the subject of an assassination. Relax. We're talking to Eliza Hitman, director of Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that tested its eyesight the other day by taking a quick drive up to Castle Dracula. Now we can see just fine, but... We can't go out during the day. What are you going to do? Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, the fourth revolving chair that last week was occupied by Jason Isaacs, who was on wonderful form. Come back anytime. Um, well, it's it's empty. Mm. Yes, that's right. It's empty. It's press day for Empire Magazine right now, so pretty much the entire team is slaving away on that. Uh, bar myself, I finished my section over a week ago. Anyway, that sound you can hear is a huge sigh of relief, currently being breathed by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning at the news that because the fourth chair is empty this week, the new and hugely popular weekly fact segment has been postponed. Hooray! Hallelujah! Naked dancing in the streets. <laughs> At a social distance. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can indeed hear rejoicing in the streets of wherever it is they live. Isn't that right? Helen O'Hara and James Dyer. Hello. Yes, it's absolutely true. So much rejoicing. Thank goodness. I've got a fact for you. I am fucking thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, this, this new fact segment uh, has proved enormously popular. People stop me in the street. Um, no, they don't, because I don't go out. But yeah, if, if I so. did, if I if I were walking down the street, and um, people would stop me uh, and and raise me onto their shoulders and, and hold me aloft. Why would they do that to you? You don't even have to find any Because it was facts. my idea. <laughs> piff. <laughs> Stuff and piffle, that's what I say. You're in, you're in fucking lead. You're in the lead, honestly. I mean... So I have all the more moral authority Hang to on. say it's terrible. How many does Helen have? Three or four. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you have somewhere between two and four. And okay. the revolving fourth chair has just two, I think. How long have we been doing two. this thing? Too long. It feels like a lifetime. How it long really have we been in lockdown? I mean, six <sighs> months, a year. It's, it's hard to say. What year was it when we went into lockdown? Um, I feel it, a lot it's like been Bruce Campbell years. at the end of Army of Darkness, not the <laughs> S-Mart ending, the other ending. That Basically, yes. that's me coming out of lockdown. One of us has said, Klatu, Barada. <laughs> we've, we've done that, basically. Anyway, we want to talk about films and answer your questions. And this week, we can answer a couple of uh, listener questions because we don't have the fact segment. Hurrah. And weirdly enough, the first one isn't film related. It's just a rather touching question from at Steelbook Blu-ray, who says, my question for you is not film related. They just want to know, how are you all doing and managing with everything at the moment? Take care. Aww. Aww. That's oh, that's nice. very nice. That's really nice. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And, you know, obviously, we don't really talk about this stuff, do we? Because, mm. you know, I'm one of those podcast hosts who likes to drill down immediately into the show. And I don't like small talk <laughs> to waylay things at the beginning of the show. So I never really ask you guys. But frankly, I don't give a shit. But also, but, <laughs> but I never really ask you guys how, how you're coping. How is lockdown life? Let's start with you, Ramona Barcelona, a.k.a. Helen O'Hara. Yeah, it's it's all right. It's been a, a very strange week for the O'Haras uh, for various reasons, not all of which I'll get into. But my parents, for example, one of their neighbours' house burnt down. Two actually houses burnt down. 
uh, just around the corner. And they they had up... two houses and they both burned down. No, no, that's no. really fucking bad luck. Is my this a Dominic Cummings have... situation? <laughs> my parents have one house. A neighbor's gas tank exploded or oil tank explo- exploded, which destroyed the house next to him. And then, uh, unbeknownst to the firemen, there was a spark or something that must have landed in his attic, and his house then went up later in the day. So yeah, so so kind of social distancing went out of, out the window in parts of Northern Ireland this week, um, as Jesus, my parents took that's awful. Na- suddenly homeless people in. Um, so that was pretty awful. Um, but but you know, here I've just been reading and trying to write and going for runs, and you know, I did a little half marathon on the weekend, so that was good. So on my you, own. you um, get out, you actually get out. I absolutely, 100%, definitely go out every single day for a walk or a run, or I would have gone mad long since. Madder, you might say, and that would be fair, but definitely, yes. Uh, Jimbo, the man who has all the empathy of a special advisor to the government. Hey, I resent that. <laughs> that is not true I at all. I resemble that <laughs> remark. <laughs> I'm just saying, you can't let things get in the way of a good Star Wars joke. Um no, yeah, I mean, how, how how the lockdown thing. I mean, I'm bored of it, but I think that speaks to the whole of the country. Like, it's been going on a mm-hmm. while now. Also, I read a really slightly terrifying um, a bit of editorial in the Week magazine where they were talking about like the storm to come and how you know we think that actually that this is you know we're coming out the worst of this, and they're saying, but this is just like the amuse bouche, and we haven't even started the cataclysmic economic fallout that's going to see widespread unemployment, like rampant inflation, and us all basically dying poor and alone. And I was like. Great. That's fabulous. Thanks for that. So I feel super chipper over that. However, all of that is made better by the fact that this week I was given an advanced review copy of a video game that I've been waiting 10 years to play. The Last of Us Part 2, sequel to arguably the greatest or one of the greatest video games ever made. So I am, I am, you know, up to my ears in that and I'm loving every second of it. And it's far, far better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's far far better to play the apocalypse on a video game than to just walk outside and live it mm. so isn't the last of us 2 just a bit of a misnomer yeah it's really confusing to me yeah they were the last of us this is the l- remainder of something the remainder I mean, of the last of us if they'd gone like the anti-penultimate with the first one then they could have built in three stories yeah. but now they've just written themselves into a corner I always saw it as a trilogy. Um, <laughs> it, do, it does have a certain amount of uh, additional impact now, being so you know culturally relevant. So. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I want to play Pandemic the game, if I'm yeah. honest with you. <laughs> Apparently Pandemic's a great game, actually. It is, I've played it. One of the reasons why I play FIFA 20 uh, a lot is because Mo Salah isn't going to come down with coronavirus halfway through a game. Jimbo, um, Helen, Helen's uh, parents' neighbours have uh, had misfortune befall them um what's the worst thing that's ever happened to one of your neighbors <laughs> apart from you moving in of course <laughs> apart, from, apart from us moving in uh, like the clopex we i grew up in the countryside of northern ireland surrounded by farmers and uh one of our one of the farmers got uh, gored by one of his bulls in a nearby field oh, uh, he, he survived he survived but uh you know that's that's pretty bad um helen's parents neighbor got their house burned down jimbo mm-hmm. One of my neighbours in the Red Oak was a notorious paedophile who was shot and killed by the organised crime squad when they came to arrest him. Except that's right. not actually true because it happened in an episode of Touching Evil, which was shot on my road. But nevertheless, I'm taking it as gospel. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. Absolutely wow. true. Robson Green came to the road upon which I live and shot a notorious paedophile for the show. Wow. Okay. Because wow. I was going to say, if this was the facts section, you would have just won. <laughs> 
I mean, if we're getting into things shot on my street, when I lived in Paris, I lived on Ooh. Avenue de Bretagne, which is where Sean Bean stops to throw up during the car chase in Ronin. So, <laughs> I mean, I should get points for that. I've never heard it pronounced that way before. Ronin. Ronin. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the prequel to Ron Out. Oh my God. That's 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 not where I, I should have gone with that. But, <laughs> but here we are. We have to deal with it and move on. Um, what's the colour of the boathouse of Hereford? That's not the, yeah, that's not the worst pronunciation vis-a-vis that movie. Robert De Niro's pronunciation of the word Hereford is the worst <laughs> thing. It's so it's it's so upsetting. It's like Bobby, you've been to England. You should know how these things are pronounced. You're talking to an Englishman. Like, why didn't Sean Bean? I, have we, we've never had Sean Bean in the podcast, have we? I don't we should get so. him on the fucking podcast so we could just ask him one question: Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you tell him it's Hereford? What the hell are you doing? Honestly, that's top of your Sean Bean question list. Pretty much, huh. <laughs> pretty much. Um, someone else has asked us if we should, uh, if we would like to talk about the um, the MCU chronological timeline that someone did. Mm. Did you see this? Yes, it was a commendable use of time. I feel, and yet, as you pointed out on Twitter, Chris, this has already been achieved albeit off the record, by yourself. Well, yes, to a certain extent. So to explain this, uh, a guy called Tony Goldmark, who hosts Some Jerk with a Camera, has spent his lockdown doing the right thing, which is he has gone through the Marvel Cinematic Universe and put everything in chronological order. And by that, I don't mean, oh, let's watch First Avenger and Captain Marvel before we watch everything in the order in which it was released. Not that at all. What he's done is he's gone, there are bits in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that take place in 1989. There are bits in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that take place in the 60s. There are bits in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that take place in 1991. So I have moved them into the correct order. And so if you have 23 films on Blu-ray, you'll be swapping discs in and out of your Blu-ray player like some sort of high-end DJ. So we start off with the prologue of Thor The Dark World with Tony Curran, of course. There's a flashback sequence of Thor Ragnarok, then we're into Thor, then it's Black Panther, then Winter Soldier, all that stuff. So it's really, really involved and really, really complicated. And it's fantastic. And um, he is doing something. I did this. I did this for the magazine a couple of years ago before, I think, Black Panther, before Spider-Man Homecoming, you know, and the idea was that we would print it in a magazine across four pages um, as a all-encompassing timeline of the MCU. And we were going to do it as this colorful graphic. And then I started doing the research into it and it became clear that this wasn't going to take up four pages. It was going to take up somewhere in the realm of 10 to 12 pages. And we just didn't have quite frankly, the the pages for that to happen. Uh, I will also say that I was adding in things that happened in the TV shows as well. You know, so there are flashbacks plenty in Agent Carter, all of Agent Carter, (laughs) pretty much. Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Marvel Netflix stuff, everything that happened in those shows as well. This is not something that Tony Goldmark does. He correctly sticks to the films because anything else is sheer madness. Uh, But it's it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. Uh, I never got mine to completion, so to speak. Uh, And it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to look at. Uh, Hell's Bells, Jimbo, what do you what do you reckon of of this? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing work. I I kind of don't have the will uh, to do it, <laughs> even attempt it. I really don't. I, I mean, look, I know all these. There's been a real sort of controversy going on online. I have some friends who are doing Marvel rewatches at the moment, and some of them are, oh, should I watch it in in release order or, or chronological order? And I've been saying release order, and 
Uh, a few people have gone chronological and ignored my advice rudely. It's just, it does make sense. It doesn't make sense. You lose you lose all the sort of excitement of all the post credit stings that don't pay off for like 16 films because you watch them chronologically. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, but yeah, fair play to this because this is this is mammoth. This is this is really good. I feel like it might highlight some slight discrepancies in the timeline. I'm not sure if that, that's going to help. But um, but you know, hey, good work. How did uh, how did he get around the Spider-Man snafu? What's the Spider-Man snafu? Eight years later. Yeah. To quote a recent episode of Drag Race, look over there! I need to interrogate this in great detail. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't properly looked at it, but it's absolutely crazy. I mean, you know, just to show how convoluted it gets, I'm just going to give you one quick example. At one point, um, he asks you to watch the first prologue of Thor, which is, um, which is the Jane Foster business. Uh, and then some more of Thor starting at 30 minutes and eight seconds. And then you stop at 35 minutes, 32 seconds, pop out the Thor disc, put in the Iron Man two disc, watch literally one minute and 22 (laughs) seconds of Iron Man two, take that disc out, put Thor back in, watch less than a minute of Thor, take that disc out, stick Iron Man (laughs) two back in again. And then just repeat. It's like, it's like baking a cake. It's like doing different layers of a cake. You have different things on the go. So basically in order to make this work, you need to have 23 TVs and 23 Blu-ray players is what I'm saying. It's like making a really shit cake. Like, no, I'm 100% with Helen with this. There is never any excuse for this kind of folly. Like, everything always should be watched in production order. Always, without exception, always. Because that's how they were made, and that's how the vision unfolds. Helen, you're raising your finger. There's got to be something I'm overlooked. I feel like you wrote the piece on Star Wars suggesting otherwise. No, no, no. My piece on Star Wars is absolutely set in stone that you have to watch it in actual production order. The difficulty with Star Wars, Helen, the difficulty with Star Wars is you cannot watch it in production order because the originally produced four, five, and six don't currently exist. So my order for this was you need to watch the ones from the 2006 DVD edition, which is the unaltered ones, or the dodgy despecialized editions, which are excellent, or the silver screen 35mm scans, which are also available. You need to watch those three, four, five, and six. Then you watch one, two, and three. Then you go back. You go back, Helen, and then you watch four, five, and six again, but with the special editions. So that makes sense <laughs> of Hayden Christensen turning up at the end of Return of the Jedi. And then, and then you go on to seven, eight, and nine. It's very, very clear. It's on the website. Look it up. It's Empire very, Star Wars viewing order. <laughs> four, five, and six. One, two, three. Four, five, and six. Seven, eight, nine. That, okay, that seems is the official right. order. I call it the time machine edit. Oh, boy. Because it requires going back in time to watch the original theatrical version. See, that's not as convoluted as this is. It's not like you watch two minutes of Revenge of the Sith, then eject the disc, watch 27 <laughs> seconds of Attack of the Clones while standing on your head. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but most of these are available on Disney+, Plus, and you don't have to play with discs as, as endlessly as yes. you're maybe suggesting. What are these suggesting? discs of which you speak? <laughs> yes, but that's the thing, Helen. They're not all available on Disney+. Plus. That's and if true. You want to I did watch say must. The, but that's the thing. Mm. But if you want to watch The Incredible Hulk, which is a huge part of this timeline and of course both the spider-man films then you have to you have to do the disc thing you have to do the disc thing the narrative ebb and flow of these things means that some things are deliberately meant to be experienced afterwards because they fill in gaps like it's basic storytelling like like breaking it down and sort of like doing it in a very chronological fashion seems like a very odd way of trying to experience a story like you know it's like when people did that memento cut in chronological mm-hmm. it's like well, mm-hmm. why would you do that like what's the point the film is just tedious that way and then of course you have all the time travel shenanigans in Avengers Endgame where they're going back into other movies and, and whatnot. and he has for the most part said that you just watch Endgame as it goes because they're in a new timeline 
it's not like they're going back into that movie and affecting the events of that movie. So, um, so for the most part, so he has it. He has it, the the last five things you should do is watch the last couple of minutes of uh, of Infinity War, then the second post credit scene of Ant Man and the Wasp, then the first post credit scene of Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> then most of Avengers Endgame and then finally you can watch in its entirety Spider-Man Far From Home thank god for so that so he's done a chronological canonical timeline that also respects the many worlds theory do you know what fair enough <laughs> <laughs> so it's at Tony Goldmark on Twitter and uh, hats off to him one last question, and it comes to us from at Waveform DM. Anyway, the question is, what's the best on-screen portrayal of blindness? There's only one answer to this, surely, and it's Rutger Hauer in Blonde <laughs> Question answered, job done, let's move on. I mean, they wow. gave Pacino an Oscar for Scent of a Woman. <laughs> but Rutger Hauer is fantastic in that film and didn't even get nominated. It's uh, almost like it's just a, a nonsense action film. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually striking to me how few films there have been with actual blind actors. Like, I'm genuinely quite shocked at how few blind actors have, have ever had a chance in Hollywood. There were a few in the in the early days, but mostly their career ha- happened or was certainly established before they lost their sight. And then later on, they were maybe m- managed to make a few more films. But I mean, it's quite shocking just how I knew there was discrimination, but just how far it goes is is pretty bad. In terms of blind people playing blind people, the only one that comes to mind is Ray Charles in Blues Brothers. And he's obviously not there as an actor. He's there because he's Ray Charles, (laughs) although it is a great bit where he's, you know, sort of shooting guns at people trying to rob his store. But yeah, I, I was I was quite taken aback actually by that it's 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 kind of crazy i mean i'm looking it up here as well and uh the list of blind actors is very very thin indeed um so people like um i don't know this callan mulvey who's an actor you would know him if you saw their face he he lost a sight in one eye so he's he's partially blind same obviously peter falk um which allows Mm -hmm. me to talk about colombo for 45 minutes as i I like to do every episode uh he had a glass eye peter falk had a glass Mm -hmm. eye at dinner parties he would pop out his glass eye and drop it into someone's soup just for the lols (laughs) Uh, but otherwise, uh, Jack Burkett, who uh, starred in a couple of Derek Jarman films, Jubilee and uh, Jarman's version of The Tempest. Um, but by and large, uh, blind mm-hmm. people in movies are used for two things. They're used for in horror films and thrillers to ramp up the tension because, you know, Audrey Hepburn, for example, in Wait Until Dark or Madeline Stone Blink, you know, they're, they're, they're blind. So therefore, they can't see the killer standing three feet away from mm-hmm. them. There's automatic tension. Or, of course, they're used. Um, they have been used, I think, less so uh, these days uh, for comedic reasons. Relief, and obviously we do not condone that. That said, Ron Burgundy uh, going blind in Anchorman 2 is hilarious because he's not actually blind. He just thinks he is, which is a joke that makes no sense on any level. He's no Richard Pryor. But you're right. So they're either used as kind of victims in horror films or whatnot, or or they go the other way and they become your blind fury or your Denzel Washington in The Book of Eli, which is yes. frankly a massive spoiler for The Book of Eli. Massive spoiler. <laughs> Couldn't be bigger. But I really like that. I thought it was, that was a lot of fun. And, and Daredevil, naturally. No, Daredevil, naturally. Although, I mean, the thing about Daredevil is watching that film back, especially, you would never for a second actually believe that man's claim to be in any way impaired visually. Like, he just... He's uncanny to a degree that is just unconvincing as a blind person. Um, so I know that you know people are very, very accomplished at getting around on their own, very independent, and everything else. But like he is literally catching things when they fall in a way that no sighted person could. Never mind a person with any <laughs> kind of impairment. It just doesn't ring true. He is 
yeah, he's he's not convincing. Anyway, um, what about Paddy Duke in The Miracle Worker? She won an Oscar for that. I mean, there have been quite a few Oscars, of course, for people playing with um, pretending to have disabilities they didn't have. But she's very good in that film. That's the one where Anne Bancroft was um, the her tutor, who's basically teaching Helen Keller, who is deaf and blind, ah. to communicate with the outside world. So um, that was a pretty good film. That's one I do soppy. not know. I have to. I have to say. Mm. I must confess. Um, that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, Pacino in Center of Woman is. I yeah. guess one of the most famous, one of the most famous, ooh, you know, uh, perhaps, perhaps a, you know, a, a career achievement award rather than a, a, a nod for that specific performance, but he's, so. still, oh, he's still really? very good. I think that performance is magnificent. I really do. And not just because he's blind, I think he's very, very good. We talked about in a recent podcast how he beat Denzel Washington to Malcolm X, and I don't really think that that performance is better than Denzel Washington and Malcolm X, but you know, but hey ho, that, that podcast has not been heard yet because it's a Denzel Washington ranking, which will be up at some point in 2022, the way I'm going <laughs> at the moment. But uh, listen, we can't talk about Nick in Blind Fury, Rutger Hauer's character. We can't talk about, you know, uh, Blind Swordsman without talking about Satoichi. Satoichi. Mm. Yes. That, that's a, those are amazing films. I'd completely forgotten those until right this second. Um, but yeah, I loved Satoichi. I saw the, what, 2000 and something one with the Keshi yeah. Kitano. Yeah. yeah. 2003. 2003. Wow, that so, long yeah, ago. Oh, I God, I feel old. I feel very, very, very <laughs> I old. I hate to break it to you, Chris. Same year as uh, Mark Stephen Johnson's Daredevil, 2003. So big year for, for blind people who know martial arts. I am surprised, mm. Chris, while we're speaking of blind people, that you haven't given a shout out to David Strathairn in Sneakers. As Whistler, oh, the yes. blind hacker yes. who uses that kind of braille flipping thing to, to read the code as it goes out. It's very good. And the way he can, he figures out where the bad guy's lair is by figuring <laughs> out the sound that the roads make on the way there. He's oh amazing. He's so good. Whistler is my god. Um, also, if we're, if we're broadening the category slightly to people who, for one reason or another, can't see for a period of time, I would start uh -oh. by Tom Cruise in Minority Reports because okay. I very much enjoyed that sequence. With but the this sandwich. Course, this does, of course, yeah, dude, this does, of course open the door to me talking about one of the greatest films ever made. Return of the Jedi? Bird Box, which I oh, absolutely no. adore. And for some reason, no one else on earth agrees with me on this. I think that film's a fucking masterpiece, uh, and I loved every second of it. But I, I, again, I think the idea of that, that they can't look because they can't see, they mustn't see the the aliens is, is absolute genius. And I love the way it's played as well. I think it's I think it's a hugely tense film. Uh, admittedly, not on a level quite with A Quiet Place, uh, and perhaps poorly received a little bit because it came out the same year. But I don't understand why lots of people didn't love that film. Did you, were you both meh on it? Bird I, thought it was, I thought it was yeah. decent. Oh, I didn't get excited people. about it. Terrible people. The guy's just written a sequel, hasn't he? Josh Mallerman's just written a sequel. Bird Boxes? No. Bird Cages? <laughs> Wait, no, that's um, been done. Whatever Sandra Bullock's character is called, that's the name of the book. Oh, okay. Do you know I what not know her character is called? I can't remember, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love the film so much I can't remember what her name is in the film absolutely wow. true Han Solo of course is temporarily blind at the beginning of Return of the Jedi that's true you have hibernation sickness oh my god that's terrifying uh, and of course his temporary impairment leads to the um, the fate of Boba Fett that's right yeah yes. except now we know it's not his ultimate fate please I can't I'm not just no and Jeff Healy, we're talking about blind people who actually star in the movies. Jeff Healy, the great blues guitarist uh, who died a few years ago, uh, he is in Roadhouse. Remember Roadhouse? Yes, I love Roadhouse. And the guitarist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, have either of you watched C on Apple TV Plus? I haven't. 
If I'm honest, I really, really like this. I bang on about it on the pilot podcast all the time. But this is Jason Momoa. In the, everyone in the world is blind except for like a couple of babies who were just born and a couple of other dudes. But it's really interesting the way they've done it. Stephen Knight show and he he kind of the battles in it a huge epic, not quite Game of Thrones esque, but huge epic battles carried out entirely with soldiers who can't see. And the way they operate, like these guys with these sort of spinning ropes so they can hear the sounds and they can see when it impacts on things. They've really thought through what would happen if two entirely blind armies clashed. And it's it's quite extraordinary. Huh. It's, a, it's a really, really good show. Loved it. Mm. That does sound kind of interesting. I always loved um, the Day of the Triffids, um, mm. the book. Oh, yes. It hasn't really ever been well adapted, but the idea of that is that there is a mysterious question mark meteor shower that um, leaves mo everyone who sees it yeah. is blinded by it. Um, and so it's only people who were like in a stupor and, and weren't awake for that that basically have any sight left. And then man-eating walking plants take over the world. <laughs> Look, it's a lot better than that sounds. I, I realize there's no good way to say that. Do you remember the 80s TV series? I don't think I saw that one. I saw the most recent one and wasn't 100% with it. Yeah. I've just got a really fixed idea of that one in my head and I, nobody's really done it yet. If you're looking, by the way, if you are a TV executive and you want to adapt some John Wyndham, I think there's still room to do another good Midwich Cuckoos. And mm -hmm. I definitely think the Day of the Kraken has been well overlooked and that, that time has come. So somebody do that, please. Thank you. Release the Kraken. Release the Kraken, indeed. I mean, yeah, there have been loads and loads of films uh, with blind people at the centre. Uh, over the years. So we, we're, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Dancer in the Dark, Bjork and Dancer in the oh, Dark. Oh, that was a great one. Can I just say, when I went into HMV in Belfast to buy the DVD of Dancer in the Dark, the guy at the desk literally called over all his colleagues. He goes, look, somebody's finally buying it. Um, and I literally <laughs> had to explain myself. They were like, but why do you want it? Like, no one's bought this. We've had it on display for months and like no one's buying it. I'm like, oh, well, I liked it. <laughs> we had the same thing i used to work in a computer game store in debenhams in harrow and there was a video game on the shelf called secret weapons of the luftwaffe and it had been there <laughs> since the store opened no one had ever picked it up and then one day a guy came in picked it up brought it to the desk and i looked at him and i said is this a joke <laughs> i genuinely didn't believe he was gonna buy it and he did and he walked away with it and then oh, he wow. brought it back for a refund but that's neither here nor there so he, <laughs> he bought it he played it and then he asked the refund is yeah. that basically is that one of the secret weapons of the Luftwaffe? Always yes. ask for yeah. a refund. <laughs> it came back and it was back on the shelf. It's probably still there. So did he come into the shop and make a beeline for it? Like, had he been in a case to joint beforehand <laughs> and was like, if I buy this thing called secret weapons of the Luftwaffe, will that make me look bad? Do I belong in some sort of register? The answer is yes, obviously. You're saying, was it like a planned purchase? Yeah, I, I think it was I think it was more of an impulse purchase in this particular case. Okay. I mean, it yeah. was Werner Herzog, but I mean, who who knows? <laughs> Wow. Just the one German person you knew. You just, you just no, dropped him in there. No, not even just because he's German, but partly because I watched Jack Reacher last night and I just love the idea of him as the Zek coming into the store and just staring at me, yes. <laughs> getting me to bite yes. off my own fingers and then give him a copy of Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe. What, like, what were the Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe? Because surely they used them all and they weren't very secret. Yes, planes, mostly. Was it, was, yeah, it was just planes. I think it was just like a German flight simulator. I, I, yeah, like the V2, I guess. Mm. Was that was that 
under the Luftwaffe or anyway, it's probably getting a bit technical. Yes, yes, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps it is. Listen, if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We're on Twitter, of course, as at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast or chances are we won't see it. Or just wait every Thursday for me to send out a panicked call for questions, which is exactly what happened this week. Uh, so well done at Waveform DM and everyone who responded. Uh, and who knows, your question may be used next week if it wasn't used this week. All right, time now to delve into the movie news. And there has been some movie news, which is very, very nice to uh, to see. Uh, I think we should maybe start with news that we didn't cover in last week's show uh, because we we didn't entirely know the ins and outs of it. But uh, Mission Impossible 7 and 8 have had a bit of a casting upheaval, uh, doubtless caused by the delay in production due to the lockdown and actors being committed to other projects. So it seems that Nicholas Holt, who had been cast in both movies, is out because he has a commitment that he can't get out of for another movie. And he has been replaced by S.I. Morales. Now, that means, I think, as we all know from anyone who's listened to the uh, Chris McQuarrie spoiler specials for Rogue Nation and Fallout, these movies are often in a state of flux uh, in terms of the characters and the plot and the things that happen in the movie and the stunts and the action scenes and the things that people say. <laughs> but otherwise, they're set. Well, we know that last time there was an enforced delay on a Mission Impossible movie, he used that time to really go through the script, really go through the footage and everything that he'd shot so far and, you know, really polish everything up, change things around, you know, just make stuff better, uh, resulting in a really good movie. If that's what's happened this time, then hooray for Macquarie, quite frankly. Like, I think that's going to be a good thing. Um, he may change his mind a lot, but he also, you know, does it with a purpose in mind and does it to get to a very clear, coherent place in a weird way, in a way that not everybody manages, I think. Also, if you can cast Admiral Adama's father in any role, you do it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> any member of the Adama family, really, let's be honest. So in case people don't know who S.I. Morales is, who who is he? Jimbo, you seem to be very over with a man's work and career. <laughs> He's somewhere else. He, he, he is good. He was in Caprica. He played, uh, I believe it was Joseph, Joseph Adama, I want to say was the character's name, uh, in Caprica, which was the kind of spin-off series from uh, from Rondi Moore's Battlestar Galactica. Uh, but God, well, he's been in Criminal Minds as well, so you must have uh, seen him <gasps> in that, wasn't it? Yeah, he used to be in that. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> He's done loads of loads of like called. He was in uh, the Dust Till Dawn TV series that Rod Rodriguez did. Um, oh God, what NYPD else? Blue. Uh, yes, yes, it was an NYPD Blue. As well. He's been Ozark too. Uh, I think he did a stint on Chicago PD and in one of the NCISs. Though I can't remember which one. Isn't he Deathstroke? On because uh, I've seen lots of pictures of him this week as Deathstroke. And whenever the uh, the news was announced on Macquarie's Instagram, loads of people were going Deathstroke, Deathstroke, Deathstroke. Which might, I, I thought initially was a sex thing, but yeah. turns out that he is actually in Titans, the TV show that um, I and I suspect most people didn't watch. <laughs> oh my God, he's in Blue Bloods as well. Oh, oh no, surely not. So he's been he's been one of these actors who's been pounding the beat for a very very long time, um, and now you know it all seems to be bearing fruit for him. And uh, this is a apparently a bad guy role in in this movie, these movies, which hopefully we'll start filming very very soon. It's exciting yeah. stuff. Well done, him. Yeah. And sticking with this and sticking with with casting news, um, it, it appears nothing's been confirmed yet, but it appears that Warner Brothers have found their new Superman. And they have found their new Superman by basically looking at their old Superman and going, That guy. <laughs> yeah, him. Just 
brush the dust off him, shave off the moustache. You'll do. Henry Cavill <laughs> appears he's back in the uh, in the frame. But it's unclear what for, isn't it? Mm. Like he's yes. going to be Superman, but we I mean is this in the post-credit sequence of Shazam 2? Is is this what we're saying? Like it's it's unclear to me. Well, yeah. I mean, so basically the story is and none of this is confirmed. This is all, you know, speculation. But uh, Deadline I think were the first to report this that that Cavill is back in the frame. So Cavill was part of he he popped in uh, on the um the watch party last week for Man of Steel uh, at the end of which Zack Snyder announced his Justice League cut uh, is going to be coming to HBO Max next year. We covered that in last week's podcast. But uh, mm-hmm. so Henry Cavill popped in. Clearly he's still tight with Snyder. Um but what this means for because Snyder's no longer involved with these movies going forward. I mean, Justice League is the, his Justice League cut is going to be that. That's it, and he's out. He's moving on to other stuff. He's got Army of the Dead, aka the greatest movie ever made, uh, coming out <laughs> next year. And you know he's moved on. But Cavill has always said he, he still wants to be Superman, and he still feels he has something to contribute to the character. The character is now finally going in a direction that he would like to explore. But it seemed that the DCEU was done with him. And mm. and so they haven't really had this great, grand, coherent master plan. The last shot of Shazam should have been him mm-hmm. in the Superman costume. And it's still a great last shot, but it loses something with that cavil. So, you know, go back. Release the uh, the cavil cut, is what I say. Stick it back in. <laughs> but what, what, do you, what do you think about this? Where do you think he can go? I mean, look, it, it, it probably is looking like Shazam or Black Adam or something like that, uh, the way things are going. It would presumably be too late for Wonder Woman 84, which is has been locked for a long time, unless it's a you know post-credit sting again. Um, it would seem like that that doesn't really fit. I think uh, the Suicide Squad has pretty much you know done it's, as it's well. Done. And he feels like an odd fit for the Suicide Squad anyway. Yeah. R-rated film. Totally. Superman should not be in an R-rated film. I, don't, I, I just feel that on a basic level. I agree with you, Chris. I feel like there's a whole load of you know <laughs> people out there who think that a gritty Superman is a thing that exists in the world and should exist, which is bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, and and yeah, and the Batman. Do we want him in the Batman? That again is it's odd, especially if you're telling a new, unconnected Batman story, and we've already seen Henry Cavill standing next to Ben Affleck. Like it just again, it feels very strange. So so yeah, I mean, look, I I liked him for Superman. I didn't like his Superman films a huge amount. That's fair. And I think he has to fight a slight tendency to sometimes look smug, which is a <laughs> an emotion and a situation that should never occur on on Superman's face. It just shouldn't. But I'm 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 open to more Henry Cavill Superman. I just I'm not sure what it looks I like. I think right he now. should focus on being Geralt of Rivia. That's my Henry Cavill. <laughs> I, mean, I think he should focus on being James Bond, but that's <laughs> that's maybe just me. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, are we going to see him in the Superman? Who the fuck knows? I don't, I don't really know how this is going to play out. I really don't. But, but it's funny, isn't it? Because there's all this, there are lots of DC ructions at the moment. We've had release the Snyder cut. We've had Henry Cavill returning as Superman, and now it's like release the air cut seems to be the latest thing, isn't it? Like David Air <laughs> oh God, is, save us. is <laughs> save us indeed is claiming that his cuts of. Uh, Suicide Squad is something that he wants people to see. So, I mean, I don't imagine this is going to happen, but he was talking about it on social media, about how he was never happy with what Warners did with the film, and he wants to have his own character mm. out there. But you can't imagine anyone allowing him to do that, because The Suicide Squad is a kind of sequel semi-reboot, isn't it? So if you have a semi-reboot yeah. of it, and then a now redo of the now non-canonical first film, it gets quite muddy quite quickly. But I, I think... 
if these redos, these director's cuts are are non-canonical, I mean, they're, they're just kind of basically seen as, as I said last week, as curios, museum pieces, mm. then I think that's fine. You know, and if David Ayer wants to go in and go, look, guys, this is what I wanted to do. And it wasn't a complete shit show, uh, unlike the, right, the, yeah. the version they released in movies. And, you know, that's fair enough. What I'm concerned about um, going forward is whether some Machiavellian studios might see this as a great revenue stream, that they fuck with the director's oh, vision, boy, no. release <laughs> the original movie and then a couple of years later allow them to release their director's cut and there you get you get two hits two bites of the cherry i'm sure i'm I'm sure that won't happen of course it's weird isn't it because it used to be a director's cut was a sort of almost a reward for a film going well you know uh close encounters blade runner well okay blade runner less so but alien these were films or alien sorry these were films where the film had done well in cinemas and when the director said look i'd like to you know, zhuzh with it a bit. The studio's like, cool, we can re-release that Mm. and people might like that one too. But now it seems to be, you know, your film was critically reviled and audiences didn't care and you get a do-over because we're the bad guys suddenly. Like that's a really weird message for both filmmakers and studios Mm. to be putting out there. So I I don't know how much of a trend this is going to be. I'm always interested in seeing these things, you know, but... Mm. I, I don't want to live in a world where we encourage campaigns yeah. like this all the time and, and some things have to be just done and we have to move on, surely. And I, I dislike that idea. I mean, this is slightly different, but like people have used this release Snyder Cut thing as a kind of a victory to try and be like, now release the proper version of The Last Jedi. It's like, there is no proper version of The Last Jedi. You just didn't like it. And it feels like it's it's opened the the floodgates to pandering to sort of fan outrage over something that they found disappointing. Admittedly, in Snyder's case, yeah, in Snyder's case, it, it genuinely, there were extenuating circumstances and this isn't the film that he literally made, um, you know. But I just, I don't know that there's a bright side to doing this. You raise an uh, interesting point there, Jimbo. Um, even a broken clock tells the correct time <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> about, <laughs> about, about these things being non-canon and canon. So this, next year in Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is, I think, is the official title of what it's going to be on HBO Max. It's going to be at least four hours long. It could be the film, could be in a film version, or it might be broken up into episodes. We don't know yet. But uh, we're going to see his version of Darkseid, right? But that won't be the canonical version of Darkseid. So then at some point in the DCEU, another filmmaker might have a bash at another Justice League movie, or Darkseid might show up in a Superman movie down the line, mm. and they'll be making the version, and that will be the canonical version of Darkseid. And it might look completely different. You know, there's almost Elseworlds type stuff going on here. Yeah. I mean, I think a few years ago, it was, I think, Kevin uh, Sujihara who said, you know, they weren't going to worry about tying everything together anymore. They were just going to try and make each film stand on its own merits. And that's where we started to get sort of Suicide Squad kind of going off and doing its own thing to an extent. And we, we obviously got Shazam doing its own thing to an extent. There is a sort of a, you know, a very loosening of ties rather than a tightening of ties um, in and I don't know if the DCEU, which apparently is a phrase that started as a joke, but I don't know if that is even a phrase we should be using at all anymore because I don't think there's much in the way of joined up thinking. And and sometimes maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you need to do what's right for Wonder Woman and not worry yeah. about how that t- ties into the Batman. 
um, because they don't obviously have to you know, move in lockstep, you know? I think, I think you're 100% right. I think sometimes an overarching, singular, unified vision works very well, MCU being a good example of that. But I think you do need a very clear overall single vision. You know, you need a Feige character doing that. Other than that, I just think people end up, and DC is a good example of, this, of tripping over your own feet. And, and I think you get hamstrung and your films, which could have been great, are ruined because they have to be tied into these other films, different visions, different tones, uh, and completely. Like, I just want to see a great Wonder Woman. I don't need, I don't give a shit how it ties into Justice League. I don't give a shit how it ties into the Batman. I just want to see a good Wonder Woman film set in the 80s with lots of neon and day glow and shoulder pads and perms. Well, boy, James, do I have the film for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Wonder Woman 1984, and hopefully it's out later in the year. God, I hope so. But we shall see. But just one last point on this. Um, I think if Cavill is going to carry on as Superman, then give him a vehicle worthy of of that. Mm-hmm. Allow him to lead at least one more movie as Superman. Don't use him piecemeal. Don't have him show up in post-credit stings. Have him be Superman in his own movie and let him be Superman instead of this tortured uh, haunted soul from another planet, which of course he can be, but I, I want the sunny side optimism of the Christopher Reeve Superman back on the big screen. Let Superman be Superman is what he's saying, James. I understand. <laughs> That's a West Wing joke. <laughs> okay. I, fi- I figured as much. But uh, um, another thing that happened this week that was pretty big, uh, there were a couple of trailers. One was for the Charlize Theron um Netflix movie, The Old Guard, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, and that's based on a graphic novel, and it's about a group of immortal warriors who uh, formed a badass soldier unit, (laughs) soldier squad, badass soldier squad. What did you think of that one? Looks looks okay? Looks fine? Yeah, looks Looks decent. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with Charlize Theron leading your action team. Um, So I'm, I'm excited to see it. And of course, the big trailer of the week was Christopher Nolan's Tenet which uh, is still apparently on course for a theatrical it's release in happen. July. It's not going to happen. I'm staking my money at right here, right now. <laughs> it's not going to happen. See, maybe the thinking with these is this and Mulan are currently scheduled for the middle and end of, of July. And maybe their thinking is, look, we'll have nothing else to compete with in the cinemas for months. We can sit there for months and months and months making enough money to overlook the fact that you know the cinemas are going to be like 25% full. So maybe it could work. But don't they also have that problem where the amount that studios get is weighted towards the opening weekends and the opening of it? So wouldn't they need to renegotiate their back-end deals with the exhibitors to make it worth their while? Possible, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just I just honestly don't believe for one second they're going to release it. I really don't. I just think I think that film dies on its arse if they release it in July, and I just don't see them doing it. But that's a question mark over every release date still on for this year and indeed into mm. next. So... It's a bit of a worry. I mean, of course, the lockdown rules don't mean anything anymore, apparently, given that the lockdown is screening the government in Durham, themselves ignore so that's, them. Uh, that's good to know. Oh, well then, let's all go on a road trip. <laughs> let's all go to the Durham Odeon. Let's all pile into big Dom Cummings Jeep and head up there on a single, a single tank of petrol. Have we got any infected friends who can drive us? <laughs> Tell you what, guys, if you get into big Dom Cummings' car, you best be prepared not to stop. You better not need to go to the toilet or want to have a <laughs> snack uh, at the road chef. He ain't doing that. He's putting the the pedal to the metal and not stopping until he hits a wall. 
<laughs> That's basically <laughs> what he does. Um, anyway, but also in terms of films being pushed back, so Chris Nolan is still saying basically, and Warner Brothers is still saying, yeah, July, July seventeenth, mm-hmm. Tenet is opening in cinemas right now, which means he may have access to some sort of time travel shenanigans that maybe That's he's possible. living his life in the future and working backwards, and so he knows that everything's okay by July seventeenth, and maybe he should tell other filmmakers and other studios that as well because this week. Uh, Last Night in Soho officially moved back uh, from September into next April. Edgar Wright's new movie, Last Night in Soho. And obviously very, very sad that that has happened, but very, very excited to see it when it opens in April. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, Tenet, the trailer, I'm still none the wiser. It looks incredible, but I have not a clue what is going to go on. And I'm going to optimistically predict that I will be exactly the same after I've seen the film. <laughs> I think I will be more confused. I am um, very excited. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing it. There are certain extremely Christopher Nolan trademarks on display. Handsome men wearing extraordinarily well-cut suits, <laughs> talking complete nonsense to each other in very confident tones. Um, and you know, oh, you've heard the pilot TV podcast. Oh, <laughs> and action, action scenes. That We're not well dressed. What are you talking about? Well dressed. Oh no, that's not fair. Terry is very well dressed. Anyway, and Boyd. Anyway, so I just I don't know. It's uh, it looks but extremely. Did he like watching the trailer though? And perhaps this is just me, but I could not get away from the backwards episode of Red Dwarf. I kept expecting one of them to turn the screen like our pats to order a pint of Erskib from the local landlord, and I just it just <laughs> I can't get away from it. I just can't. That's the episode in which um, doesn't Lister discover, to very great comedic effect, what happens when you go for a piss? Uh, the cat, in fact, discovers. Yes. Is it a cat? Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what happens. That Maybe it's reverse pooping all along. Um, but yeah, oh. so it seems to be, you know, it's it's expands a little bit on what we saw in the first trailer. We seem to know now that John David Washington's character and Robert Pattinson's characters are somehow trying to stop World War Three, um, mm-hmm. And uh, Ken Bernard's character is somehow involved with that. And he's some sort of Russian oligarch, evil I mean, that worked well le- last time, right? I mean, uh, yeah. For- Absolutely. Jack Ryan, yeah, super yeah. good. We, who, who, who can forget? <laughs> He's going to ask one of them to eat a light bulb. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Debicki seems to be Branna's lover, who um, also makes the goo goo eyes at John David Washington, and then you have Robert Fair. Pattinson essentially playing Chris Nolan. And I'm wondering <laughs> now at this point, it's got to be deliberate, hasn't it? I mean, or does Nolan just not notice that a lot of his leading men are playing him? And he gives them the same haircut oh. as well. Like, I, yeah. surely you'd notice when it came to the haircut. I don't know. I mean, it's great that he's found his look, I guess, and wants to share it with the world. That's fantastic. Bastard's basically just saying, I've got hair, my hairline isn't changing, I've got loads of hair. Screw anyone else who may be losing their hair. Um, not oh god it hits close to home uh but it looks it looks fantastic there's a bit with a jumbo jet um i'm i'm all for it this looks mm. this looks very very good um and i've already seen it and i've given it bleep, bleep, bleep. you have to play this podcast backwards to figure out what i've given it uh what else is happening in the world of news well we should probably talk about martin scorsese because killers of the flower moon has been on his to-do list for approximately as long as any of us have huh. been alive i think um and uh it looks like it's finally taken another step forward. So Paramount initially agreed to finance it. The budget went up. They were a bit like, "Mm, not sure about this, Um, but they've now reached a deal with Apple, which which are taking over the financing and the rights. So Paramount will still release it in cinemas. It will still be on the big screen. Um, 
but it will also be on Apple TV Plus on the small screen. Um, it's apparently their biggest acquisition yet, and they have been spending a lot of money. So that must be quite a fair bit. Um, so yeah, so this is about Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, Scorsese's favorite people together at last, mm. who are um, investigating a series of murders uh, set around the Osage Nation in the US, um, where a Native American tribe uh, oil was discovered under their land and suddenly they start being murdered one by one and the newly created FBI has to figure out who's doing it. I feel like I'm, I can guess it's going to be the people who are after the oil. So that's going to be um, apparently chilling, a chilling conspiracy theory and one of the most monstrous crimes in US history. Well, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, number one, you mentioned De Niro there and uh, this mm -hmm. was meant to be, obviously the Irishman was their first time together for since Casino, since 1995, the first time that uh, Marty and Bob had worked together, as they'd like me to call them, my, old, my, good, my good chums. But we, the first time since, you know, since, since uh, Bob De Niro was supplanted in Marty's affections by that young mm. whippersnapper, Leonardo DiCaprio, that, you know, that they would have worked together as, as a team. But De Niro's name was missing from the variety story yesterday, which I thought was very, very oh. interesting. It was basically just starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And I wonder if maybe there's a scheduling thing or maybe De Niro hasn't officially committed to it. And I also think that he's been linked with a bad guy role in this uh, as well, if, if and when he does sign on. So listen, I hope this works. The interesting thing about this is obviously Apple stepping up to the plate. And this deal is obviously designed to be one of the things that makes them a big player in the streaming world because Netflix are throwing money left, right and center at, at pretty much anything that moves. And they funded they funded The Irishman, you yeah. know, which which no conventional traditional movie studio would do. And all of a sudden here you have Netflix going, yeah, Martin Scorsese, you want to make this, <laughs> you know, on the surface of it, uncommercial three-hour vision about gangsters slowly aging and the uh, the, the basic, you know, futility of life. Of death, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the inevitability of death. Yes, we'll, yes, we'll fund that. Does Joe Pesci say fuck? Then yes, we're in. <laughs> That's pretty much all we need to know. It's interesting that he hasn't gone with Netflix here. And it's also interesting that Paramount are co-funding it because the, the rumors about the, the budget of this movie have been online for a while now that it's mm. swelling for reasons I can't quite understand, maybe because it's a period movie, but who knows. Mm. But I've seen figures like $225 million bandied around for a movie that should, on the surface, not cost that much to make, you know on the surface, just looking at it. You know, yeah. it doesn't have any huge special effects sequences. It's not like we don't have to deal with armies of extras, that sort of thing. But that's the that's the reported budget. So you can see why Paramount might be a little bit nervous about, about that. But you can also see why they wouldn't want to pass completely on something like that, because studios increasingly have to be seen to, to stay relevant. And they have to be increasingly seen to be in the pleasing great filmmakers game, because otherwise they'll just fuck off to Netflix or they'll fuck off to Amazon or they'll go off to uh, they'll go off to Apple. So it's interesting Paramount have stayed in the game and Apple, I think, are basically just uh, they haven't really made a huge splash in movies. And this helps them do that. Yeah, it does. I don't I mean, I genuinely don't understand how this could possibly cost over 200 million that makes no sense to me genuinely none uh <laughs> I'm, I'm almost offended by it actually it's that makes it's so mad it just seems very strange anyway but you know i can't wait to see it obviously but it feels like a lot of money being concentrated in the hands of very few filmmakers when you could actually support a whole load of other filmmakers for the same amount that's all i agree i agree but uh but listen you know if in the end this helps us see the new Martin Scorsese project, um, then, you know, I'm all for it. Despite what he said, those nasty things about Marvel. <laughs>
You monster. You monster, no! Just a couple last things in the news section. So Doug Lyman is going to direct Tom Cruise in space. I don't know much more about that, film. but yeah, it should be. I mean, it should be. That's why we're going to see it, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. also Doug Lyman, because he and Tom Cruise, you know, do good work together. Edge of Tomorrow mm. was fun. Yeah. Um, and I like and Made the... in America. Born yeah, I did too. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember Tom Cruise in that. No, no, but... no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying Doug Lyman has some action chops. He, he does. does. He does. Yes. Also, do you need? Do you see the thing? I'm, I'm sure James, you discussed this, of course, on the Pilot TV podcast. But uh, that Amazon yes. are getting heavily the into lawyer. the rescuing the link. Well, potentially, this this made no sense for 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 CBS anyway, because it's a they like procedurals, and this was never going to be a procedural. Like they wanted to do this as a serialized show, which is why they passed on it because they think that's risky programming. And this is where Amazon lives, not least of all, also because Bosch is on fucking Amazon, and Bosch and Mickey Haller are half brothers. Therefore, you can have a mm-hmm. brilliant crossover episode. Bosch finishes next year, so you can have the final season of Bosch could cross over with the first season of The Lincoln Lawyer, and it's a passing <gasps> of the baton, and we're in and Michael. Uh, Michael Connolly heaven and yes please I don't want it to be a passing of the baton I want them to actually be in like a season together yeah, or have... that would be ideal but then maybe Welliver then it crosses be. over into the Lincoln Lawyer Bosch finishes but he carries on playing Bosch in the Lincoln Lawyer Absolutely. winning uh. winning Titus Welliver his face is his warrant <laughs> cast this man in everything you can but this is uh, so just to give some context to this uh, I was actually going to say as well that Amazon have also snapped up the rights to the Steve Larson books the, yeah, the Millennium, Millennium books the girl with the dragon tattoo etc 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 so as someone pointed out I think it was Jeff Snyder from Collider pointed out this week that Amazon have snapped up the rights recently obviously they've made two seasons of Jack Ryan they've got a Jack Reacher TV show in development they have Bosch which is the seventh season coming mm. soon Jimbo the seventh and final season mm. of Bosch uh, which are based on the Michael Connolly books Michael Connolly also created Mickey Haller, aka the Lincoln Lawyer, played of course by Matthew McConaughey in a 2011 movie that I deeply, deeply That's love. Right. And revisit right. every, genuinely, I revisit every couple of years. It's one of those movies I just keep going back to. It's like comfort food for me. Uh, it's a real source of sadness that we never got to see another mm. Mickey Haller movie. Um, mm. And of course, now they've snapped up the Lisbeth Salander uh, books as well. So, so, so what you're saying is that they basically own all the books on sale in the average airport. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. And like I'm not I'm not slagging because I like I like a lot of these books, but like the, they are the mass market paperback yeah. kings it's, right yeah. now. It's a great business strategy, it really is. But also, it, the crossover freak in me is be- is beginning to wonder about a, a show where Jack Reacher is framed for a crime he doesn't commit, and who should defend him but Mickey Haller, and oh. who is in Mickey Haller's court investigating the crime, but Harry Bosch, and who is trying to put Reacher away? Jack Ryan. That's right. <laughs> Jack Ryan, for some reason. Wait, <laughs> I mean, a lawyer is about the only thing he wasn't, but okay. Reacher has to go to Sweden to prove his innocence, and there he teams up with Lisbeth Salander and Mikhail Blumkist. Now, Jack Ryan's got to be involved with getting him to Sweden somehow. Like That's where you get him in. It's a sort of international angle. Yes, Jack Ryan ha- has a CIA plane take Jack Reacher to Sweden, and there he meets with... Uh, Lisbeth Salander and Mikhail Blumfist. And also, can I just say as well that I saw the uh, the story reported this week, and I totally get it. I absolutely totally get why you would report the story of the you know them snapping up the rights to the Stig Larsson books as 
you know, Lisbeth Salander is going to be rebooted. And I get that. She's a wonderful, wonderful, once-in-a-generation character. But as an overweight, middle-aged journalist, can I also just go to bat for Mikhail Blomkvist <laughs> a, a little bit? Because I feel that apart from the original Swedish movies, which in which Michael Nykvist played him, and then, of course, the, the David Fincher movie in which Daniel Craig, everyone's version of a middle-aged, overweight uh, balding journalist. Um, <laughs> that's 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 who I think of, and his weird fucking way of wearing his glasses. Um, apart from that, I feel like he was kind of airbrushed out of the picture for the uh, the girl in the whatever it was called. So you know, all I'm saying Kicks is the hornet's nest. Something. No, spider web. Spider's web. Spider spider's web. web. You're on the spider's web. So all I'm saying is basically, it's about time that us middle-aged, overweight journalists had their shot. <laughs> Justice I mean, for Mikhail Blomkvist. What about Spotlight? Shut up, Helen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lester Bangs in Almost Famous, I think, was all of us. He was quite young in that, though. <laughs> Leonard Bernstein. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm just very excited about the idea of, of a, a Lincoln Lawyer TV show. And God damn it, Logan Marshall Green was cast as Mickey Haller in the CBS show, which had been cast, had directors, mm. had scripts, had everything, was ready to go. The mm. lockdown has... Uh, maybe CBS lost their nerve about it during the lockdown. Who knows? Maybe there's financial implications as well. But it is now out and Amazon looked like they might pick it up. The Michael Connolly books are really good, by the way. You should, uh, you should check excellent. them out. But I will say... If this is going to be an Amazon show and Amazon have a lot of money and a lot of clout, there is only one person who can play Mickey Haller and it is Matthew McConaughey. Make it happen. <laughs> Hang on, we haven't figured out how to have it cross over with Wheel of Time yet or Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so our Amazon shared universe has a little bit further to go. But speaking of uh, stories that are seemingly never ending, not just to, referring to this week's podcast, uh, Labyrinth seems to be back mm. in play mm. after over 30 years. Tell us about what's happened, people. Yeah, so Scott Derrickson, having departed Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, has <clears throat> embarked on his own Multiverse of Madness and is doing a long overdue. Overdue? Was it overdue? Were we ever looking for this? I don't know. But he's doing a sequel, not a reboot, <laughs> a sequel to 90s, 1980s Henson fantasy Labyrinth. Uh, obviously, this is most famous for Jareth the Goblin King, aka David Bowie's, shall we say, packet. It's really not. <laughs> it's famous for his, he dances in tights where one can see a clear outline of his genitals. This is the thing I think that Labyrinth has, what? in retrospect, become most think. famous for. Absolutely serious. Uh, so how you replicate that in a sequel without, you know, said packet or indeed said Goblin King, I don't know. But someone did, someone did postulate. Really? You, you don't, you're not familiar with the packet. I'm going to lay out my Labyrinth credentials very, very early here. I saw it once as a kid, didn't like it, have no <laughs> connection to it emotionally whatsoever. So when the internet was going nuts about this the other day, I was like, I'm mm -hmm. glad for Scott Derrickson that he's got another mm. gig after you know what happened in Doctor Strange 2. But otherwise... It's it's Yay? it's pretty beloved. Though it's mainly beloved, I think, for Bowie. He is the best thing in it. Uh, but there's someone did say, you know, imagine this, the Goblin Queen is Tilda Swinton. And the second someone said that, I was absolutely <laughs> sold on this project. I mean, somebody then objected to that on the basis that she's already played Bowie and indeed played Bowie with <laughs> Bowie. So that wouldn't be fair. Someone actually suggested, well, there were a couple of suggestions that caught my eye. Tom Hiddleston was mm. kind of an amusing one. I can kind of see that. And then somebody suggested you go in a completely different direction, but keep that level of cool and go with Janelle Monet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, that kind of makes a certain kind yeah. of sense as well. There isn't yeah, necessarily, because this is a sequel, not a 
reboot. It's not a remake, mm-hmm. so you don't need a Goblin King. So maybe it is something very different. Like who who the fuck knows? Maybe the little caterpillar worm thing is the new Goblin King. I mean, whatever. Maybe it's a Goblin Queen, and they have a crossover with X Men in in our continuing expanded universes. <laughs> and it's Madeline Pryor, and we just get Sophie Turner to play her. It's sold, great. Done. Do it. Although perhaps with a slightly more concealing outfit than that particular slightly booby comic book strip. Um, that is, yeah, that was a yes, spectacular outfit. That's precisely what we don't want. No, I'm saying that particular, <laughs> of all of that particular period of Marvel comics, I think that was the most egregious. There was a bit where she, Madeline Pryor, remember she wears that, that sort of black leather outfit and it gets con- more and more ripped as it goes on until it's just a couple of threads over her bits. I don't know anything about Labyrinth, but did, did some of people suggest... Um, Surely, I saw some people on Twitter say Jennifer Connelly should be the Goblin King slash Queen slash oh. gender doesn't really matter to the Goblin Ruler. That's true. Doesn't really matter, I guess. But uh, Jennifer, you would make it. Jennifer Connelly should be in this movie. I think is what yes, we're basically saying. She's worked with Scott Derrickson before on the Day the Earth Stood Still remake. She's got form with him mm-hmm. there. Uh, she's clearly not a first to star in, in a long gestating sequel. She's going to be in Top Gun Maverick. So mm-hmm. I say yes, bring her back. And also, uh, I don't know a lot about Labyrinth the, the film, but I know the little baby in it. Toby was um, grew up to yeah, Toby 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 Froud, I think, the son of the legendary effects whiz Brian Froud the Hanson whiz Brian Froud uh, is the baby in it and now he is a special effects kind of puppeteery bloke in his own right so bring him in as well when he's on the job people come up to him and go you remind me of the babe what babe <laughs> the babe with the power <laughs> see this is completely lost on Chris he's like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> It's just like you, you might as well be running West Wing lines <laughs> <laughs> I've got no idea what the hell's going on which is weird because you think Labyrinth would be right in my wheelhouse, would, yes. right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't adore it as much as I adored some other Jim Henson stuff growing up. I think I was okay. more the Dark Crystal mm. than Labyrinth I mean, for a no long time gig. and I came around in my twinks. Well, um, anyway. Um, <laughs> Babylon 5 is a big pile of shit. Stop it. We've had this discussion. <laughs> How do you not respond to that with get out? Hot fact and spoiler <laughs> for the Pilot TV podcast on Monday. I'm going to Banshee Babylon 5 just for you, Helen, on the next Pilot TV podcast. Yay. Hurrah. So say we all to quote another show. Anyway, another labyrinth could be good. They just have to get that tone right and they have to get the casting right and they have to bring back the puppets. So that's going to be the most difficult thing is to persuade them all to to come back this time. Hmm. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Good director. Mikey mm-hmm. Levin is writing the script. Mm-hmm. Early days yet, but we shall see what happens. Um, but before we move on, did I ever tell you guys about the dream I had in which I had financed and built a theme park in which every paddock was dedicated to clones of the guy who played Londo Malari in Babylon 5? Londo Malari. Yeah, do, this do is you so remember that? And then, and then I would go, uh, people would come to the park, I'd come to mm-hmm. the theme park, and I would go, Welcome, Welcome to Peter Jurassic Park. <laughs> to. <laughs> Such a twat. I knew where that was going. It just takes so long to get there and there was just no way to escape it. (laughs) It was, again, it was one of those things where someone's cut the brakes in your car and you're hurtling towards an accident and there's nothing you can do to avert it. Yes. Yes. Should we move on? Let's. Let's have a guest. Let's have a guest. So last week I promised you Ice Cube. Uh, That has not happened. (laughs) So uh, thankfully... 
Uh, Eliza Hitman, the director of the fantastic drama Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, was gracious enough to leap onto a Squadcast call, I believe it was last week, with, with Helen, and uh, they talked about the movie and uh, Eliza's reasons for making the movie and all sorts of stuff around the movie itself. Now, this was a really interesting interview. Um, there may be some slight issues from Eliza's point of view. She, uh, as far as I can see, she's living in a fairly noisy part of the world. Uh, I'm going to try to alleviate that as much as I can in the edit um, because this is a really interesting engrossing interview do please enjoy well first of all let me just start by saying I really enjoyed the film I just thought it was or thought it was brilliant actually and and something I hadn't seen before uh, in a lot of cinema it feels like this is an underexplored aspect I guess of life yeah I um, always thought about the film as being an invisible journey in a way that so many people take all over the world every day and yet one that had never been explored on screen or really even written about um, and especially not explored in a fictional context. Yeah. So it, it still feels like, I mean, basically abortion, let's call it what it is. It still feels like it's the great taboo topic. Mm-hmm. Um in, in cinemas, I mean, I could, I feel like I could count on about one hand the number of films that have talked about it. And even there are very few films even about pregnancy. It feels like this whole aspect of, of life is sort of just still in a sort of very 1950s way untouchable. Yeah. I, I think it, it's, it's sort of fascinating how, you know, in our country, you know, one in four women will have an abortion. And yet, um, the experience of it is still so taboo to talk about. And, um, you know, I think that there, you know, there are a lot of films that explore, I think, you know, more of the sort of back alley abortion and the coat hanger abortion. Um, But it's so part of our experience as, you know, women that it feels, um, you know, vastly underrepresented and underexplored and under talked about. And, um, you know, part of making the film is an attempt to destigmatize, you know, such a, a taboo subject. Mm. So, yeah. So, so how did you start developing the character of, of Autumn herself and, and then I guess Skylar with her? Mm-hmm. Well, I was um, very interested in the state-to-state restrictions that women encounter um, in trying to um, get an abortion. And just looking online from state to state, it's like impossible to decode what you can do and when and where and how. Um, and I was just imagining you know, that through the eyes of a, of a young person and a minor, someone who's under 18 and, you know, totally unable to, um, you know, have any autonomy over her body, you know, without either talking to a judge or asking her parents and how sort of disempowering that must be. Um, so I, um, you know, really, you know, settled in on that point of view and the age and the, the background of the character early on. And then I just tried to put myself as much as I could in her shoes. So once I had honed in on the location, which is a small town in rural, you know, in Pennsylvania, a coal town, I went there and I walked around and I just tried to get a feel for the place and, you know, where do young people work and where do they hang out? And, um, and if I was, you know, 17 and pregnant, where would I go? Mm. So I, I went and I took a, a 
test, a pregnancy test in a crisis pregnancy center. And there's one in every town in America. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, tried to put myself as much as possible into the shoes and experience of the character and know really what it was like um, to navigate these, you know, this very um, bureaucratic landscape as a young person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I thought that visit to the uh, crisis center was really interesting because the women there are very friendly and very calm and very kind of motherly towards her. Um, but they're also only there with one real aim in mind and they have one very clear outcome that they want to see happen as a result of the situation that she's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I wanted to depict those centers with authenticity and without um, my personal judgment. So it was important for me to go through the counseling sessions that the character would go through so that I understood how they talk, how they approach people, because otherwise there was, a, you know, a risk of exploring it through caricature. Um, and their their underlying intent really is to help and to support, but obviously um, they're not licensed doctors and they're not um, licensed facilities and there's a real limit to what their knowledge is and obviously their belief system um, is you know, different from mine and is informing, unfortunately, the way that they counsel. So my, my, you know, my goal was to sort of to represent it, you know, as it exists, you know, without judgment. Mm. It feels like a really even handed movie that way. It feels so, um, if, I mean, I think, you know, I, I know that uh, you've, you've said in other interviews that the term neorealist is not one that really you welcome, but I can see why they certainly latched onto the realism of the film, because it does feel very much like a depiction of, of reality rather than a sort of polemic on reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't want the film to be preachy, obviously, and I wanted it to be a balance, you know, of procedural and this coming of age story and this character study and this, you know, exploration of female solidarity mm-hmm. all at once. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't know, you know, you know, if for me, you know, there's a poetic quality to it and a subjective and lyrical quality to it. Um, you know, it's not so harsh in a new realist sense, maybe, but I understand the reference, obviously, and the roots are there and deep. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me about um, about Sydney Flanagan, who mm-hmm. plays Autumn and, and Talia Ryder. I mean, how important was it to to find just just the right people for them? Because I think they're both stunning in the film. Thank you. It was, you know, I think casting is um, the most important part of the process. And I tend to take a really long time and I'm not necessarily 100% decisive about what I'm looking for. Because when you're looking for a human being, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, not looking for a character, you're looking for a human being. And uh, we started the search you know, in rural Pennsylvania and went to county fairs and tried that strategy and it didn't, we couldn't quite get interest from real people. Um, And then we looked into the agency world and, you know, everybody is good and competent, but maybe didn't have the, the roughness and the rawness that I was looking for and the vulnerability. 
Um, and then Sydney was someone I met working on another project um, a number of years ago. I met her when she was 13, and I, I was casting on a nonfiction experimental project, and I met her in Western New York. And it was sort of interesting, I, you know, with young people, you tend to add them on Facebook instead of asking for their numbers, it's less invasive. So Sydney yep. was living in my Facebook feed for a number of years and um, she would put all these postings up about relationships and love and heartbreak and um, music videos of herself playing guitar alone in her bedroom. So I felt like I was watching in a very voyeuristic way this online coming of age story. Mm. And I just began to connect her in a real way to the character. And I did think she had charisma and presence. And, um, you know, somewhere in our casting search, I begged my producer to fly her to New York just to see. And she came. Um, and as soon as I saw her in person, because I didn't know what she would feel like in person, um, I knew that I wanted to cast her. Oh, that's really cool. So, uh -huh. so, so she she kind of had a maybe unconscious role in in, in shaping the, the the film. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I thought a lot about her, you know, throughout the casting process and even a bit in the writing process, and had this window into this angsty teenager's world. Talia came in through um, a regular audition, um, and. You know, it was interesting. She had done Matilda on Broadway. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, it kind of comes from like the opposite background in a way because she has this, she's a very dynamic dancer and she sings and she had this Broadway experience. And I don't think anyone thought that would be what I was looking for either necessarily. But when she acts, there's a realness and a softness and a gentleness and a, a youthfulness to her that I thought would complement really well Sydney um, because obviously you know there's a feeling when you watch Sydney that there is a story inside her and that she's seen things and Talia has the optimism in a way and you know this feeling of um, levity that I wanted. Yeah. It's interesting to cast these kind of roles because they need to be different and yet complementary. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, what we're sort of looking for. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about Sydney's guitar playing as well, because of course you open the film with this mm -hmm. sort of musical number really and mm -hmm. and it, it's it's almost a fake out i think for the audience it's mm -hmm. um it looks like a very different film than the one we're we're actually watching which i kind of loved so what what was the what was the thinking um when you put that together i was just thinking you know a lot about um the exploration of teenage experiences on film you know, also with the, you know, the the sort of make America great again sort of uh, ideas that this country has and our, you know, administration, current administration's attempt to sort of to dial the clock back to this moment in time and why we romanticize both the experience and the music and this kind of idea of teenagerdom. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was playing with misdirection and, you know, wanted to introduce the main character as being, you know, 
in conflict. Mm. Out of step, with, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, with the you know with the ideology of that experience. And so, so the, the the two girls basically have to head off to New York because they can't get any any help any closer. I mean, you're a native New Yorker, mm-hmm. so so how did you approach these scenes of these you know real out of towners, very much out of their depth, very much kind of on the edge, like finding New York through those kind of incredibly mm-hmm. fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. I think what was fun about seeing New York from an outsider perspective was that I I knew I wasn't going to romanticize the city, you know, and they were never going to look up at the skyscrapers. And in fact, they're sort of in the bowels of the city because they they're it's cold out and they spend most of their time in Port Authority. So I just tried to really focus on um the micro challenges of navigating the city as an outsider. And I think that New York is an incredibly unwelcoming place. Um, and, you know, there, is, you know, the city is very indifferent to tourists and um, it's not an easy subway. Listen, there's nothing intuitive about mm-hmm. the subways. And um, I just tried to sort of focus on the real challenges that anyone encounters. And I don't think everyone falls in love with New York Mm. who comes. I think it can be hard, especially if you do arrive in at the Port Authority instead of, I don't know, Grand Central or something. Like mm-hmm. it's a very, it's a very different city at that point. But, but yeah, I wanted to ask as well about the, the you know, so that this, so they get to New York and, and a little bit later comes the, the scene that inspired the title of the movie, mm-hmm. which is one of the most powerful things I think I've seen all year. I just, I just thought it was absolutely stunning, but it's a very grounded, very realistic, mm-hmm. um, very kind of procedural scene of someone taking essentially a, a, a medical history. Um, so, so where did where did that come from? Was that I know you consulted with with Planned Parenthood and, and other organisations. Is is that where is that really just the, the procedure? Mm-hmm. I think um, you know I knew I was going to I knew how I was going to approach the beginning of the film that we would withhold the information about who the father was but tried to evoke a sense of darkness and mystery around the pregnancy and I knew that I was looking for ways in the writing to sort of tease out information about what she had been through and subtly and minimally Um, and when I met with Planned Parenthood and I began to discuss and consult on that aspect and that portion of the narrative, they took me through the whole process. And I was really, really struck by the um, intimate partner violence section of the intake questionnaire. And there was something very lyrical and rhythmic about, you know, the never, rarely, sometimes, always part of it um, that it's, its intention is meant to get people to open up. Um, so I knew that, you know, it would be the longest scene in the film as soon as I heard it. And it was important for me to take people through the experience and also men who had never gone through that before. Um, yeah, so I just saw, you know, through conversations and real field work, was able to discover the structure of the film and that scene, you know, 
through, you know, just through research. I mean, let's talk about the big issue here. What about the men? Because they are certainly see themselves as the big issue at all times. So, um, you know, they're more or less left out of the narrative for, for large parts of the film. Um, was it important to just to just really focus in um, and on, on the on the relationship between the two girls? Yeah, I wanted to make it, you know, entirely, you know, a female driven story. And I also don't think, you know, men see themselves as accountable in these situations. And I do think that there's a lot of women who go through these things very alone. So that was, you know, what I was honing in on was accountability, responsibility, um, you know, and the burden that is left for women to sort of to navigate the aftermath of these events. Yeah. What has been the male response to the film? I think that, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I hear this stuff secondhand. You know, men are like, is that really what it's like? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's hard for men to sort of put themselves, you know, into the shoes of women. And for some reason, when men watch movies, like movies about men are universal. Um, But movies about women are, you know, specific and niche and, you um, you know, not about them. It's hard. I don't know why people can't identify with experiences that aren't their own. It's problematic. And can I ask as well about sort of career progression? Because Mm -hmm. that has been the big question for a lot of female filmmakers. They Mm -hmm. make a a film, it gets great reviews at a festival, it gets, you know, lots of attention, lots of praise. Mm -hmm. And then there's no follow up. There's no, you know, the phone isn't ringing, people aren't making offers. Mm -hmm. You've obviously made three films in, what, 10 years, a little bit under, which I think is remarkably successful actually mm-hmm. um, but that does it feel like it's a it's a fresh struggle each time or does it feel like you're really kind of building a reputation I, I don't think that I've had any overnight success mm. at all um, and I think I've built my career very practically and very gradually I would say you know I wrote it felt like love in like 2011 and I wrote it very practically and pragmatically and knowing nobody was going to help me make it except like five people who I could convince you know and that was it that was that's how the movie got made you know we made it for under under a hundred thousand dollars um and once the film was shot we were able to bring on financing partners to, to help pay people back and um, finished the movie and Beach Rats, you know, nobody would have made Beach Rats but Cinereach, a nonprofit organization. Um, and they were the only ones interested in me and they were the only ones who would have taken that risk, you know. And I can say I've been, you know, very proactive in building my career and I had struggles finding representation, but I went out and found people who I thought. I went to them and I found them. Right. You know, um, so I, I don't know. You know, I, I think it is remarkable that I've made so much work in a decade. And at the same time, it feels very self-initiated and that, you know, that I've had all these people calling and trying to produce my next movie. Yeah. Which they should be at this point. I mean, look <laughs> at all your awards. It's ridiculous. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Eliza Hitman, thank you so much. And um, never, rarely, sometimes, always is on video on demand right now. So if you haven't seen it already, 
get after it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for me to fly solo with this week's Celebrate Our Cinemas segment. The idea is simple. During this global pandemic, when most cinemas have been forced to close, their survival is on the line. Many won't make it without financial aid, and many are mounting innovative plans and schemes to ensure they'll be there when we can all go safely to the cinema again. So each week, I ask you to shout out local and beloved cinemas. Here is this week's selection. These are all sent in to me via DM on Twitter, by the way, at Chris Hewitt, in case you don't already know. At Kevin underscore L asks to give a shout out to the NIFFF, the Nushatal International Fantastic Film Festival, NIFFF.ch forward slash EN. It's in Switzerland and its 20th edition in July has been postponed until next year. So, an online interactive special event will take place during this year's dates, July 3rd to July 11th, with National TV in Switzerland showing previous winners every Friday night in May and June at 35 minutes past midnight. It's pretty precise, and cinemas will be doing the same in the autumn once they reopen. At our Pat's Yao asks us to give a shout out to the Cinematech USF. That's Cinema T E K. E-T-U-S-F, which is a beautiful escape in Bergen, Norway. And they've shown obscure treasures to classic blockbusters. It's a wonderful place to sit down with a beer, says Arpat's Yao, and watch Predator Deep Red House 77, to name a few. And they've just opened their doors again, that's good to hear, and I hope they get the support to stay that way. At Heisenberg Pod asks us to give a shout out to the Dendy in Newtown, New South Wales, Australia. It's his local cinema, has decent prices, good benefits from members, wine, and always lots of people focusing on the beer and wine this week. I don't know why. And they always have a range of both mainstream and indie movies. He says he saw Endgame four times in six days when it came out and in between also saw the Korean film Burning. At Upper Perry asks for a shout out for the Watershed Cinema in Bristol, which is a great warm and welcoming independent cinema with creative spaces, independent festivals, talks and support for local filmmakers. On top of this, they have a great bar. There's a beer and wine again and fantastic food. Uh, His now wife and Upper Perry went on their first date there after film studies and have enjoyed many nights out there since. You can donate via watershed.co.uk or even sponsor a seat in one of their three screens. At T underscore Schley asks for a shout out for the Apollo in Aachen in Germany, which is formerly Atlantis. Now, I think they mean the Apollo was formerly known as Atlantis. I don't think they mean that Aachen was formerly Atlantis because that would solve a pretty big mystery. It's an independent art house cinema. It is also a music club, bar and much, much more. Intriguing. Hmm. The catchly named at L29419098 asks for a shout out to the Odeon in Hereford. Hereford? What is it about Hereford this week? Uh, They say that they've given them the confidence that they have now and they've become like family to them now that they've been working there for over a year. So here's my question to you at L29419098, if that even is your real name. What's the colour of the roof of the Odeon in Hereford? What's the colour of the roof of the Odeon in Hereford? At DJC1616 wants the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin to have a shout-out. Uh, they say it has the most eclectic programming to be found in the city, along with carrying more limited releases, hosts regular movie nights like Hollywood Babylon, with cult favourites screened complete with trashy ads from that era, can be relied upon for sing-alongs and even dance-alongs like Stop Making Sense every few months. Wonderful staff. Wonderful staff. And one of the most comfortable cinemas you can find. Of course, they all 
have lovely bottoms. Just let them know we'll be ready to fill up the place when they come back, says DJC1616. Fantastic writer Andrew Dawson, part of the Dawson Brothers writing team and indeed sibling partnership, uh, at A Dawson Bros or bros, A. Dawson bros. I've never actually known how to pronounce that that Twitter handle, but at A. Dawson B-R-O-S says, no affiliation other than I'm a regular lair, but the ultimate picture palace in Oxford is a terrific independent cinema that could do with a shout out. Happy to oblige. They are doing vouchers and memberships if people want to support them. It first opened in 1911. Would hate to see it go under. Absolutely. Uh, and that is the last cinema for this week's shout out. If I've missed out any, then I do apologize. I haven't had time this week to go through every single message I've received. So again, apologies for that. But rest assured, you can get in touch with me via DM. If I've missed you out for some reason, do give me a nudge in my DMs and I will mention you and your cinema of choice next week. Right, enough of me flying solo. It's back to me, Helen and James, yesterday. Time travel. Isn't it amazing? Great Scott. All right, so that was the Celebrate Our Cinemas section, and uh, now it's time to bring back Helen and Jimbo and uh, talk about the movies that you could see in your own personal sofa cinema this weekend. And let's start with The High Note, which is... This is a difficult one to describe, Hell's Bells, because Mm. on the surface of it, it's easy to describe, but I can't get the the genre. Is it a dramedy? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? What is it? So talk us through The High Note. I think it... it it's 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 a, a drama leaning comedy words or a comedy with dramatic elements maybe um but yes we have uh, an r&b superstar grace davis who's played by tracy ellis ross really channeling her mum uh, in this who is who is diana ross and uh, she is you know her career has peaked a while ago let's say she's now doing greatest hits and live albums and touring around playing the old hits um, and her assistant in all of this is maggie who's played by dakota johnson who is a fantastic assistant but really wants to be a music producer so on the side she's trying to remaster stuff and kind of show how good she can be um so grace's agent jack um who's played by ice cube is kind of pushing her, her towards a vegas residency. She can just spend the next 10 years making loads of money just doing eight shows a week in Vegas or however many they do. Um, and and she's kind of considering it, but still kind of feeling the pull of new material and isn't quite sure which way to go. And Maggie's very much trying to encourage her when she can to take the risk, do something new, really push the boundaries a little bit. So that's kind of the setup. You've also got um, a young musician that Maggie meets and uh, thinks could be good. He could have a future. He's played by uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who had such a great year last year with things like Loose and Waves and so on. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of trying to produce him as well, but keep up her assistant work. It's really just a comedy and a drama about relationships, about um, artistry, I guess, and, and what we want to do in life. Um, and it feels, compared to, I think, a lot of the kind of indie movies that we've seen since going into lockdown, which have been really at the more indie scale of the spectrum this feels much more mainstream it feels much more you know big and glossy and uh, less maybe challenging in some ways but also kind of quite a comforting easy watch um with people who rub each other the wrong way and completely screw up sometimes and completely mess up relationships but basically are not terrible people and are trying to do their best i think yeah it's an interesting one, this. I enjoyed it. Um, but when I said I couldn't categorize it, it was 
Mm, it is I wasn't odd. Being, I wasn't yeah. being glib. In that there were times it really made me laugh, and I thought, well, this should be a comedy. This should be just mm. a straight-up comedy. And then there were times it goes for the dramatic notes, yeah. and it's fine, and it hits them, but I feel that if it maybe had recalibrated its vision a bit, a little bit narrow, narrower a focus, then this might have been something to really, really recommend. Mm. Um, we're giving it three stars, spoiler alert. But this is directed by Nisha Ganatra, who also directed last year's Late Night, Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, this is a kind of that movie, yeah. but in the music industry, in that it's about a young, plucky, talented up-and-comer who has a interesting, spiky, sometimes strained relationship with a genius-level mentor who has made it in the business. So Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson in that movie, and in this movie, obviously, Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Johnson. Mm-hmm. I've also just realized, uh, from you talking about Diana Rossby and Tracy Ellis Ross's mother, that both the leads in this movie have famous parents. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's something in that. You know the way that Tarantino loaded Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the, the scions of, of famous Hollywood folk, that maybe there's a there's a level of, a meta level in the casting that I'm not quite getting because I'm very, very stupid. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's uh, you know it's fun. I think Dakota Johnson is very winning in this movie. She's uh, really likable, yeah. You could argue that it might be somewhat problematic having a movie about a soul singer and you know and you know the, the film focuses yeah. on this white, white girl, girl trying to break into the yeah. this industry and you know but I, I did think about that because she knows a lot but she knows her stuff um and as a white girl who really grew up loving soul music I appreciated that as well but but I think I was trying to kind of think about that and I felt like there were enough characters calling her out on stuff for it to not be as obnoxious as it might have been um, mm. in that respect. And I also felt like in a lot of ways, a person of any race could have played her character. And I yeah. don't think the film would have particularly been altered by it. Thinking about it, and we, we won't go into spoilers here, but there are there are possibly reasons why the film is not told from from the Tracy Ellis Ross character's point of view. That maybe we've seen mm-hmm. this movie a, a dozen times. You know, we've seen the, the faded star maybe trying to gear up one last shot or throwing her career away. We've seen that movie a dozen times. Haven't really seen something from the assistant's point of view. And while I yeah. feel it's maybe a little bit whitewashed, I always have a feeling that some some assistants see some really gnarly shit and, and have to do some really interesting things, and that they know where the bodies are buried. Maybe even sometimes literally, um, but. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's a bouncy movie. It made me you know, it made me smile. One of the things is when you're dealing with a, a music like this, and this is one thing Star is Born, the Bradley Cooper Star is Born, did really really well. Is that you know if you're going to have a, a a movie in which you have several people who are really gifted musically and are huge stars musically, you got to make sure their songs are good. I do, mm. I think that's actually weirdly where this film's lacking a little bit. Uh, oh, really? But I quite like the songs. They're they're okay, but then you know I'm the guy who thought the songs were not great in British Showman and look how wrong I am. I'm probably the guy who turned down the Beatles, you know, so don't listen to me. But, uh, you know, I thought that, uh, as I say, Dakota Johnson's very, very good. I think mm. that Kelvin Harrison Jr. is a real talent. Um, I mm. don't know if he's doing his own singing. If he is, then my God. And Tracy Ellis Ross is very, very good as well. Ice Cube is fun. He's barely in the film, but he's he's fun. And yeah. there are little fun cameos as well from sort of comedy alumni people, notable people like June Diane Raphael and uh, Mark Evan Jackson. Yeah. Both of them have three names. Okay, but Eddie Izzard is, is in it as well, and he only has two. He only has two. So, what, what more do you need? I don't know. The Illuminati don't want us onto them. If they, if everybody in the <laughs> in the movie had three names: Tracy Ellis Ross, Mark Evan Jackson, June Diane Raphael, then the Illuminati would, you know, we'd be onto them. So, three right. stars. 
three, three stars okay. in for the high note. Let's move on now to The Fast of Night, which is a low-budget science fiction set in the 1950s, but that's not quite doing it justice, Jimbo. No, this, this is a film that took me, and I imagine you guys, by surprise. It feels like one of those calling card feature films, you know, uh, yeah. like The Endless, you know, from a director kind of destined for much bigger things. Um, so it's Andrew Patterson, yeah, who's making his mark here in this sort of 50s set sci-fi film that taps into the the UFO fever of that era uh, with an inspired, I would say, a, if very talky drama that uses a lot of dialogue and implication instead of visuals, mm. taking a kind of less is more approach that taps into you know all the primal fears of the unknown and all that good stuff so this begins it's kind of framed as an episode of like the twilight zone so it's like a 1950s anthology show like uh the outer limits whatnot in this case called paradox theater so it's paradox theater presents the vast of night and there's a device through this where at various points during the film it flips to an old 1950s TV set image of what's going on on screen, which looks, it's, it's, it's really effective and it's a load of fun, but it keeps kind of hopping back to that. So this sees Jake Horowitz and Sierra McCormick as um, Everett and Faye, uh, a radio host and a switchboard operator in this small New Mexico town who uncover a strange noise on the radio uh, while most of the town's inhabitants are otherwise engaged at the local high school basketball game. Um, and the film starts with this really quite arresting tracking shot, uh, and it uses uh, an assortment of different walk-and-talks and, and one which technically are kind of mind-blowing when you see them. And as a Western fan, I particularly enjoyed the use of the walk-and-talk in this film. Uh, but it kind of coupling that with these long, slow, tension-building dialogue scenes, that they're delivered with this sort of real energy and this verve and because of that even though not a lot really happens you never lose interest you're always kind of on the edge of your seat um long periods of talking i guess are kind of punctuated by uh by these sort of furious moments of running through the dark as the pair try and finds out if aliens are in fact in the sky above their town um I think, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say, that once we kind of move from the talking about it to showing it stage of the film, it loses a lot of its power. Um, but I think, nevertheless, this is a really good sort of micro-budget sci-fi film. And I think the craft here is maybe more impressive than the story, which is quite well-worn, and we've been here many, many times before. Um, but I think definitely don't be surprised to see Patterson signed up to do something very big in the not-so-distant future. Uh, he has got some game. Um, did you guys agree? What did you think yeah. of it? Yeah, I pretty much absolutely agree with that. I do think that some of the dialogue scenes could maybe have been clearer. Like it, the the patter is so quick. Oh, you miss loads of it, yeah. And you know, there's that there's that what single shot where it's the back of their heads, and because you can't see their lips, I was yeah. like, I can't understand what they're saying. <laughs> no idea. And I think you needed that those details as well. Yeah. You need that detail work. Uh, you can get a, a clearer sense of the characters and get more invested in them early on. Because I think what you're dazzled by here is the filmmaking, and you actually need to be mm. dazzled by the characters and the storytelling as well. Um, so that that's my only sort of qualm with it and and then I think that the moving in and out of the TV thing was for me less successful I liked it at the beginning as a way into the film I don't know that it helped to pull us back to the TV during the film because it just it, it didn't really add anything from it yeah it just distances mm. you from what's going on so that that I find distracting um but just on a technical level and on a you know, making something look amazing mm. for a small budget. I mean, maybe this guy should talk to Scorsese about Killers of the Flower Moon, because if he can do this, <laughs> and presumably not that much, 
you know, so maybe they could work something out. I just, um, I just feel like it does a lot it with does, very yeah. little, and I'd be really interested to see what he does with with a it bit. It really makes me feel like that kind of dark skies, sort of nineties X Files here. You know, during that that period of the nineties, mm-hmm. just before the internet really took off, where like conspiracy theories and alien stuff was really at its peak, and obviously all of that was undone when <laughs> a the internet turned up, and b everyone now has a camera and a video camera on their phone. So you know, conspiracies of that particular kind seem to have evaporated slightly and been replaced by. Now we've got really shit ones instead. Mm. Um, but that that kind of really chilling, you know, the truth is out there vibe was was running really strong in this, and I really enjoyed it. I agree. I agree. I think this is f- film that's best when it's showing, not telling. Um, so, yeah, the last 20 minutes or so, it slightly loses some of the, the, the momentum. It builds up in the first hour. Uh, but I think, you know, other than maybe, and maybe you'll, you'll throw in a few names here, uh, over the last couple of years, Boots Riley with Sorry to Bother mm. You, I can really only think of this in terms of really assured debuts from filmmakers in terms of, oh my God, this is a, this is someone who knows what the hell they're doing. Um, there's some really, really bold moments of, uh, directorial flourish in this film because it starts with these basic, as you were saying, it starts with these, these walk and talks, which are very, very carefully controlled and how they're shot. Interestingly, very, very, little in the way of close-ups mm. uh, until a certain point in the film. And then there's a long hold and a close-up as well. Uh, and then there's this incredible tracking shot, incredible tracking shot. You know, we're, we're so used to think to tracking shots and what films can do and how they can blend shots together. You know, obviously 1917 Extraction has a huge one as well. Uh, but when they're done, uh, when they're done this well, there's a great tracking shot that I won't give away what happens in it, but it establishes the geography of the town uh, in a very, very interesting way. And it kind of comes out of nowhere because the whole film has been sort of so carefully controlled. And then all of a sudden the camera's hmm. flying around in a sort of Sam Raimi kind of way, uh, which is really, really, really cool. But he also does interesting things. And like, you know, he, he kind of nods to the radio drama element of it, you know, the sort of Orson Welles War of the Worldsness of, of the, of the story and that he'll fade to black at times on, on screen as well when people are, 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 when callers are calling in, you know, to try and strip away any distractions, I guess, from anything other than the story that they're telling. This is all really, really interesting. All that stuff's the first hour of the movie, sadly. Um, but, you know, it's still, it's a it's a very, very effective movie. Um, I think this guy is one to watch, as indeed is clearly his DP, Miguel Yon Litten Mentz, um, who clearly knows his way around a camera. You know, the, the the two leads are are fine, decent. So, you know, just in case you, you didn't catch the name, Sierra McCormick as Faye and Jake Horowitz as Everett. I'm sure you will see them in movies down the line as well. It is out now. It's on Amazon uh, as of today, May 29th. It's out on Amazon. Um, I think you can get it somewhere else as well, but maybe well, it's it might actually be exclusive gonna be, to it's Amazon. It's going to be airing in the US in drive through cinemas, which is perhaps the perfect way to experience this film. Perfect. I would love to see it like that. That would be great. Fantastic. Uh, so if, you, if you're in the States, you can get to a drive-thru or drive-in, whatever they call them over there, then uh, please yeah, do. Yeah, a drive-in. Go, go and a drive-thru, you see a bit of the film, and then you'd yeah. be off with a hamburger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can I have the first five minutes of, uh, of that, please? And then I'll, I'll watch a minute and a half of Iron Man 2. Um, so, yeah, go and see it in a drive-in, not a drive-thru. Uh, but I think it's available here 
only on yeah. Amazon. So do check that out. Uh, but we would give it what well, we, I think we're all pretty much in the high three mm. camp, I think yeah. so. maybe even low four, because some of the stylistic stuff that uh, Patterson pulls off here is really, really has to be seen. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. So that is indeed the fast of night. V-A-S-T, in case my weird Northern Irish accent makes you think it's the fast of night. F-A-S-T. Uh, and we finished off this week with Only the Animals, which is a, a French movie that's available on Curzon Home Cinema and it is uh, directed by Dominic Moll and stars Denny Menachet who you might remember of course as the farmer from the beginning of Inglorious Bastards uh, Laurie Calami and Damien Bonnard and uh, I think I'm the only person here who has seen it uh, I, I mm, thought it was uh, this is a terrific Rashomon oh, Rashomon who was ever called it that <laughs> This is a Ronin. Rashomon. Yeah, Ronin. Like I take the piss out of you and then two hours later I drop Rashomon. <laughs> this is a fantastic uh, Rashomon style uh, thriller in which um, it's a mystery. Essentially, we start off at the beginning. We're introduced to a, a, a group of characters um, and we know that a woman has gone missing in the middle of a snowstorm. And we don't know where she is or what's happened to her. And over the course of five chapters, I think, the story is slowly told in piecemeal fashion, going back and forth along the timeline. And we get to find out what happened to the lady, how these characters are interconnected. Uh, and it doesn't all take place in France. There is a long section that takes place in an African country as well. So you're asking yourself, how are these characters connected? How is Denis Menachet, who plays a farmer, connected to this young guy who is... Uh, basically running an internet scam in, in in an African country. How is this other guy who is having an affair with Menachet's wife connected to this young waitress who is having an affair with a woman that she met at her restaurant? How are these all connected? The answers are really interesting, really revealing. I won't give stuff away, but there's some, some lovely late twists, really, really well acted. Uh, not, I would say hugely thrilling it's more about the mystery of things rather than it's all about something that happens say it's all about setting up stuff setting up questions say 20 minutes in and it reveals the answer 80 minutes later rather than necessarily this is going to this is going to nail you to the edge of your seat but though it's very very well acted there's a really really lovely long scene i'm learning french at the moment via duolingo and there's a lovely long scene involving two people chatting in french uh, over the internet and it helped my french immeasurably really really helpful stuff um i thought it was terrific I would give this one three stars, a high three again, as with The Fast of Night, probably high three, low four. Um, and on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more Locked Down film-related fun. We'll be joined by the Inbetweeners star, Simon Bird. He'll be here to talk about his directorial debut, The Days of Bagnold Summer. Until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye. From Ramona, Barcelona. Explain yourself, Helen O'Hara. Um, it's an obscure Coen Brothers character. How That's obscure? All. I don't even remember which film it's from. I just remember. That's obscure. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, goodbye, Helen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, I don't need James Dyer to explain why his squadcast name is Darkseid, but it's goodbye from Hashtag James Dyer. Darkseid was right. Hashtag the true hero of the DCEU. Oh, God no. almighty. He is inevitable. And it's goodbye from me, wearing Hudsucker. See, we were going for a Coen Brothers thing, Jimbo, and then you just ruined it with your dark side business. Ruined. Sorry. Ruined it. Anyway, it is goodbye from me. I'm off to find out the colour of the boathouse and the roof of the Odeon in Hereford. 
Hereford. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you next time. Bye.